Gentlemen, here we are. It's uh, day three of SIHH. It's, I guess, what it's about five o'clock. We've uh, just finished up our last appointments, and I think we've, I think we've done it. I think we're, uh, we're almost here. We got some beers here. We'll do a little, uh, little cheers uh, as we record our uh, closing, closing podcast for SIHH 2019. It was a, it was an interesting show to say the least. You know, we're, uh, we've got what? We've got John. We've got Joe. We've got Jack. We've got James, and we've got one guy whose name does not start with a J. Um, and yeah, we middle thought initial we, though middle initial. Yeah, it is middle initial. That's true. Um, yeah, so we you thought change it to J. Stephen Pulver. Okay, I'll tell my I'll t- you tell my mom that. Um, shout out to mom. Uh, so uh, let's get right into it. It's our it's our last day. We've now basically seen everyone who's exhibiting here. I think of the thirty six or thirty seven exhibitors, I think we saw like thirty one of them. Um, so let's get into it. But I, I think one of the things we want to do to start off is talk to Mr. Joe Thompson uh, about the general tone of the show. It's something we get asked about all the time. It's something, if you're just walking around the show, that people tend to to kind of like chat about, like you run into somebody and you're like, oh, how's the show going for you? Oh, how's it it seemed this year, you know? Um, But Joe's the person who actually knows because people tell Joe things that they would not tell me or Jack or John or James. They might tell James because he's very nice. Uh, but they definitely tell Joe. So, Joe, I wonder, like, what is the vibe of the show this year? What was the show like for you? Can you just tell us about your your SIHH experience? Yes, sure, St- Stephen. As you say, I'm kind of the business reporter at Hotinki. And while you guys are running around, you know, just, just going like crazy, uh, digging deep into the watches, I'm strolling the halls, talking to friends, talking to some <laughs> CEOs, having a drink with uh, retailer X and jeweler Y and watch buyer Z and CEO D. Almost all of the comments I get are off the record. I want that. I want them to be honest. And so, yeah, after three days of this, I've talked to literally dozens of uh, people in the watch industry. And I would say this, this, the, 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 if there was one word to characterize the show, it's uncertainty. Interesting. Uh, there's a tremendous amount, in my view, in their view, of uncertainty as we speak. As we speak, the U.S. government is shut down. The British government may fall this evening. Every weekend in France, the Yellow Vests demonstrate they ruined Christmas uh, for a lot of the retailers there. And looking ahead, um, there's a fair amount of uncertainty about the economy in China, about the economy in the United States, about the stock markets, which were roiled uh, in December. Uh, You know, they dropped 22% in 45 days. All of this led to uh, a really sort of kind of just uncertain mood here. And whether you're talking globally or whether you're talking domestic USA, that's the mood. So that's number one. And an example of this, in looking forward, asking for a forecast about 2019, I had one Richemont CEO to me say, Joe, I have no clue about 2019. And many other, the best I could get out of anybody about 2019 was cautiously optimistic. And from the U.S. retailers, I got bearish, challenging, difficult. And this is all because of the geopolitical situation that we all know 
and that's all and the economic situation that we all know there are fears of recession the cycle has been for all the strengths of the US economy um, there is there is a fear that it you know it's a 10-year cycle and we're getting close so that was one major theme for me at the show the the second one is sort of the theme of partnership with Richmond. Um, it's a certain peculiarity of this show that in the main hall of SIHH, there are 18 brands, 10 of which are Richmond Group brands. And so um, the tensions that are created by the fact that Richmond has shifted its sort of strategy to an omni-channel strategy uh, is creating um, sort of a disgruntlement, has for a long time, but now it's really getting, it seems to me, uh, almost to the breaking point. People are speaking openly. They will say, oh, 10 years ago, you know, I, I just felt that, that Richmond had my back. Joe, can you, um, n not, not to interrupt, but can you just sort of clarify for people who aren't familiar with the term what omnichannel means? Omnichannel, in terms of omnichannel means that Richmond uh, is, 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 in terms of going to market, it will use every channel. It will use wholesale, the wholesale, its own wholesale retail network. It will use its own boutique network. And then it will also use the e-commerce network through either their own boutiques or through um, their, uh, their net-a-porter uh, acquisition. Which, uh, uh, so, so now the feeling is that, 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 that we're, we're, we're no longer col collaborating, we're competing with each other. And so if you're a retailer, you know, when you have a boutique, you, you're competing against it's the brands you carry have boutiques in your town. That's, that's been the truth for a long time. But now, it, you know, and, and then there's the throw into the mix pre-owned. The pre-owned business is getting larger and larger, more organized. And so if you're a retailer who has, you know, th or thinking about pre-owned, certified pre-owned, um, or, uh, or actually has one, Richemont, with the acquisition of Watchfinder, is now in, in that space, too. So um, the, the sense is that uh, in these meetings, I just I no longer feel that, that these are my partners. I feel more like these are my competitors. And I, I think the tensions of, 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 of the, the fourth quarter, what we had in the U.S. this year, just to, to back up a bit, a year ago, everybody I talked to was literally euphoric. And we did a video, and we reported that, and there were some comments like, yo, calm down, calm down. But in fact, it ended up being a pretty good year for most of them. Um, and the first half was terrific because, it, we're, and we will, the market, U.S., in terms of uh, exports into the market, will be up this year for the first time in three years, and up significantly. It'll be up around 7%. But then came the fourth quarter. And the, the market went south for most retailers. And then when the, uh, j just for all the geopolitical stuff that we're talking about yeah. and the economic stuff. So the, I'll stop there, but, but that was kind of the mood. People were a bit cranky, a bit disgruntled. Not to say there weren't, there weren't high, high points of the year. There were, you know, people who had Rolex did really well. Uh, and there as, as always. Yes, there and but but they they were told what their allocation was. Their allocation was probably lower than they had the year before, so it was harder to make your numbers. And of course, in the U.S., uh, uh, Rolex, Patek, Audemars Piguet, and Cartier were hot brands. Two of them were here, of course. Just to round it off, if you were looking among the other eight brands that are in the main hall, <laughs> both Audemars Piguet and Richard Mille are also going direct and cutting their retailers. Right. So that affected people's businesses this year. Those high-end AP, 
sales you used to have, those very high-end Richard Mille sales you used to have, you didn't have them this year as much, and you're not going to have them next year at all. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear that after we've spent, you know, three days in mostly product-focused appointments, right? Like, we're we're seeing what stuff is coming. We don't hear about sales numbers. We don't hear about allocations. We're not talking to the retailers. We're talking to the people designing and making and marketing the products. So we're getting sort of a much rosier and, and more, I guess, a view with a slightly different focus. I mean, John, did, did you... Did you get any sense of this kind of thing from from appointments this this week? No, no certainly not from appointments. From a, a couple of just candid conversations with people who I know uh, who work in the business and who work in retail, I did hear things kind of along that line, uh, but on a, only on a couple of occasions. Yeah. Um, I mean, Jack, how, how about you? Did you did you get a sense of this from this week? You know, uh, I'd actually like to throw a question out to you guys. Um, you know, to Joe, but to everybody else, there has been talk. You know, since, uh, you know, uh, I mean, none of us have been in the business nearly as long as Joe, but, uh, um, you know, we've, we've all been in the watch, covering the watch industry for a while. And uh, every time there's a significant downturn, as we had during the financial crisis, all everybody uh, who's a savant strokes their beard and says, now there shall be a winnowing out and, you know, or weeding out. And there hasn't been one thus far, at least not to the degree that everyone feared. But do you guys think that given the what seems like a virtual guarantee of ongoing uncertainty globally, both politically and economically, uh, and the fact that the Chinese market is saturated, and the fact that people are deacquisitioning into the pre-owned market, and the fact that uh, vintage is uh, hotter and uh, cooler than ever before and doesn't show any signs of seeming more valid uh, than buying new. Are we looking at a perfect storm? Is there going to be a winnowing out? What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I think... uh I think it's still up in the air. I think, like you said, like that's traditionally what we've what we've seen, and that's traditionally been kind of the received knowledge, I would say. But it's not nothing's nothing surefire. I mean, that's that's the kind of the nature of the market, right? Like if we could guess on that, and we could all short some stock and be uh, very very wealthy men. But I think you know we'll see how it plays out. And I, I think I mean Joe, uh, judging by the relative strength of the market, the first three quarters of this year, I don't think anybody expected the downturn in the fourth quarter and nobody really from what you've said seems to have any idea what q1 2019 is going to look like let alone q4 2019 right no that that's that is that is correct i mean you, you know the other view is that well we've had a you know uh in terms of the american economy has been strong and has not necessarily been strong for luxury swiss watches because we had for, for various various reasons for that um, but the winnowing that, that you're asking about, Jack, yeah, the, the expectation is that, yes, it, it, it will come. It's already really started in, at retail in terms of the, the wholesale network. Um, there's a winnowing, certainly, that the brands are making. And as they winnow, winnow, and, and, and the people we're talking to here, these are the guys who made the cut, Richemont. Understand, right, right. These, are, these are the age rulers that we are talking about. Uh, but there will be further winnowing. We're seeing that, the, the going direct. And, and e-commerce makes it, the, the thrust is to go to the end consumer directly. This is, a, this is, a, this is a, a retail trend bigger than the industry. And this is not to make a judgment about this. It, it's understandable. That, and there are going to be winners and losers uh, right. in this retail revolution, as there were winners and looters, losers in the media revolution that we just went through. Uh, and before that, even uh, in the uh, um, a revolution in, in, in product, 
when the Swatch Group said it wasn't going to supply movements anymore, and then people had to then change. Suddenly, everybody's a manufacturer, et cetera, et cetera. And there were winners and losers in that. And that's kind of where we are, that kind of it. And this insight, by the way, did not come from me. It came from one of my sources. I did Claude Greisler. Uh, at Armin Strom, who was uh, Joe, you named a source. A, yeah, well, yeah he, this is fine. He's on the record with it, and we tri- we made sure of that. But that he he that's what he sees. He says this is a retail revolution that's occurring everywhere. Some and 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 retailers will adjust. Some some will adjust and be successful. Others won't, and that's what happens in revolutions. Jack, was your the winning winnowing out that you referred to? Were you referring specifically to retailers, or were you also perhaps talking about brands? Brands. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I would never. I don't think that we should look at, for example, a brand's departure from Basel World with no announcement of any plan to show watches elsewhere as a sign of their demise. I think that would be hasty to make that um, presumption. But in some cases, it it probably was the case. There are some brands, probably smaller ones, um, ones that kind of have existed on the fringes for years that will not be in Basel. And I don't know where they're going to go to sell their watches or if they will. I guess time will tell. Yeah, I mean, I think then, and we won't get too much into this, but the the next question is like, is that is that a good thing, right? Like, if if there's not a market for these products, and if people aren't buying these products, and if these products aren't successful, then like, is it is it probably a good thing that these that we don't continue to have people investing time and money and their careers and their lives into essentially creating things that people don't want. Oh, my God, Stephen, you are the prince of darkness. First, you're like, let's, let's short these guys and make a buck. And, uh, and then your, your next take is they probably deserve it anyway. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's that's that's what you make consumer goods. Like, in a, in a certain way, yeah, we like to think, you know, watches are, are mechanical art and they're these artisan goods. And they are those things in a lot of ways. They're also widgets. They're consumer goods. Like, people have to buy them, you know? It's... it's uh, we with money. With money. Like, this isn't like a patronage system. There's no Medici keeping the, the watch industry rolling. Like, people have to buy these things or they don't they don't exist anymore. And, you know, I think there's we've seen a, a crowded marketplace over the last number of years. And as interest in watches has exploded, we've seen a lot more watch brands. People want to start watch brands. And that's exciting. That's great. And some of those people are successful. There's, you know, a number of American-based micro brands that have done really well. They're small businesses, but they they do well at their scale. Uh, and then there's people who have tried to launch huge companies that have done well, and huge companies that have not done well. And you know, I think we'll we'll see it shake out. But just one point on that. I mean, there are esti- it's an estimated that there are more than 500 Swiss watch brands. Mm, you probably don't need 500 to yeah, 600 Swiss don't. watch brands. And in fact, the Great Recession was supposed to do the winnowing. Down 22% in 2009 in terms of exports. This was supposed to get rid of everybody. China rescued up 22% in 2010. So we can blame China for the fact that we did not have the winnowing. Maybe it comes You hear that, China? Joe T blames you. It's your fault. (laughs) Um, But now the winnowing shall come. (laughs) (laughs) Jack Forrester, the winnowing. Um, Yeah, so Joe, I I just wonder as we kind of close out this, this discussion, is there... Is there anything else you kind of want to leave people with from from the show? Kind of if you you had to sum up like one thing to watch maybe going forward, uh, one thing to look out for, what what would you kind of tell people to to keep their eye on? Well, that's a good question, Stephen. Uh, well, well just, just 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 one by well, that's your job. That's right. That's <laughs> why that's what you're good at. Um, one is that uh, the as one retailer put it to me. Uh, Certified pre-owned and pre-owned is the elephant in the room. And that is going to be 
a huge force going forward. And uh, I would say all of us should start paying attention to that. Cool. Well, I, I want to move to something else uh, a little bit different. Ho- hopefully, maybe a little a little happier, a little more sunshine in our lives uh, as we no, come on, as as we ponder the potential demise of uh, our our careers. Um, yeah, well, uh, nice nice end to the show, everybody. No, but Stephen, um, you're fine. You're going to short everybody. Exactly. Damn. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. So what what I want to talk about are are trends, things we've noticed. Um, more on the product side of things or on the collector side of things. Um, and I want to kick this off with Mr. James Stacy, who, uh, who is sitting to my right here and, and ask James, is there something you've noticed uh, in the product that, that you think is going to be a, a big trend heading into 2019? This is kind of our first chance to see what brands are releasing this year. So what's uh, what do you think is going to be hot? Uh, you know, I, I, th- I think that what we saw at SIHH was a handful of kind of salmon or salmon adjacent dials. I maybe stole that from John. He's nodding at me. So maybe we salmon were adjacent. Well, you're absolutely right, though. Yeah, yeah. Like, so we have, of course, like like if Longa does it, they're like that's a brand that moves slowly, doesn't use color that often, like is very reserved. So sure. if they're doing it, then I think it, it's something. And then, of course, we have AP on the other side of the line. I would say that's not a salmon dial. Mont Blanc as well. And Mont, Mont Blanc, Blanc, thank you. I didn't get to see those in person. Did you? They're yeah, they were nice. Yeah, yeah. They're really, really nice. Oh, yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, they did a good Mont job. Mont Blanc's also, I would say, very stylish, obviously, with uh, you know, given their leadership. And uh, and so I think that's kind of three edges of, of Richemont right there, of, of, of what you – that's kind of three edges of SIHH right there with Mont Blanc, AP, and Longa all in the same space. I would say that the the Jumbo isn't salmon. I made that I made that case in a piece that I wrote. Yeah, we'll link that um, up. But I would say it's more more gold tone. But I think it's in that it's in the it's in the space. Yeah, yeah, it's in that ballpark. It's salmon adjacent. <laughs> salmon adjacent. It's like how Pantone comes out with like the color of the year every year. I think we should issue the dial color of the year. Mm-hmm. Twenty nineteen is salmon adjacent. Yeah, I mean, like, and we're also seeing like I I think we're you could also make the case that green is coming, but I think green came maybe two years ago, and we're just seeing it now kind of coming into more of a sweet spot. IWC's leveraging it, I would say, as good as anyone right now. And uh, and and I would say yeah, it's it's kind of dial colors that aren't black, silver, that sort of thing. Sweet. Let's skip around. Let's go to John. Sure. You know. Uh, Sorry, John. If I stole yours. No, no, it's totally fine. I'm going to stay in the vein of uh, dial colors, and perhaps the industry is feeling blue, fearing their own winnowing, winnowing out. Because boom. <laughs> Sorry. Dots boom. connected. Winnowing puns. <laughs> Um, perhaps perhaps they're feeling blue, uh, or maybe they're just feeling stylish. If I, I was on our... Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, God. Here we go. I'm on our own homepage, and I'm looking at our SIHH 2019 page package where, we ca- where we're grouping together for your convenience all of our coverage of SIHH. And I'm counting, like, uh, upwards of 10 brands with, uh, with blue dials in the, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the hero images corresponding to the articles we've written about them. And so, like, we have them from JLC, uh, Hermes with their uh, Laura de Lune. Uh, Panerai had some nice um, blue accents on their uh, on several of their dials. Uh, Gerard Perigo with their Earth to Sky line had kind of a, a faded um, uh, blue to black uh, look on many of their dials. So blue was all over the place, and uh, those are just a few of them that I, that I was able to think of um, looking at this page. But there, there were many, many more. Um, so blue dials, I would say. Sweet. Mr. Forrester? Um, you know, I think that, uh, I was thinking about cathedral hands, uh, earlier today and, Were uh, you now? I was, I was, okay. and I bethought to myself, Jack, I bet we're going to see a lot more cathedral hands, uh, moving forward. 
And and then I said to myself in this internal dialogue, Jack, why do you think we're going to see more cathedral hands moving forward? And my reply to myself was because they're vintage. It's a way of flagging a watch as vintage and as connected to the past of watchmaking uh, that's relatively straightforward. And I think that one of the things that we're going to see is the use of uh, much more vintage cues. And some of them are going to work uh, and some of them are not going to work. Uh, you know, because vintage is now becoming not so much a connection with the past as a style cue. And um, I had a conversation with someone quite highly placed in the industry from a design standpoint today. And this, this person said, made this observation to me, and I'm going to pass it on to you guys. Uh, vintage, When vintage becomes uh, a style cue and it becomes uh, uh, something that is drained of any specific reference and any real connection to a past, then it simply it loses, it loses meaning. And I think that we're probably going to see a lot of relatively deracinated uh, examples of uh, quote vintage unquote watch design. Good use of deracinated. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I think one of the worst things that can happen to a pilot's watch is when uh, a manufacturer says to themselves, let's make it look as if it's sitting, uh, let's make it look as if it's a dial instrument. Uh, you know, because then what you get is you get an illustration of a pilot's watch rather than a pilot's watch. And I think what we're going to see a lot of uh, moving forward uh, is illustrations of vintage watches uh, rather than vintage watches and illustrations of vintage watches that don't have any real uh, organic connection with the past. And I think that's going to start to, in, in, a, in, in ways that they might not be able to explicitly articulate uh, to themselves, I think that's going to start to bother the watch-buying public and it's going to start to lose its effect. Nice. Yeah, Joe, was was there anything you noticed just walking around the show? Anything you happened to see that you thought were, were kind of trends emerging? Uh, from a product standpoint? Yeah. Yeah, well, as you know, it wasn't uh, my focus, but I, I just wondered about uh, actually two things. I, I, I did see some product. I wondered about uh, Bowman Mercier's perpetual calendar priced at $24,500, and I'm going to throw it back to you guys. I, I, what, what does that do to the perpetual calendar market? Does it have an impact, do you think? You, you can buy the JLC for 20 You can get a Master Ultra Thin. Yeah, Montblanc has one for uh, fifteen or 16000 as well. Yeah. Frédéric Constance is uh, nine in steel. Is it nine in steel? Wow. Yeah, I think the bomb, know, the bomb is, it, is nice. Is it over then? <laughs> is the it over the bomb then? Is nice, the, but let's be honest, the high we'd all buy the JLC, right? Yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd go for the JLC. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Master Ultra Thin is yeah. around twenty thousand. Yeah. When it launched, it was nineteen seven. I was at the launch several years ago. It's probably gone up a little bit, but it's under probably under twenty two. Yeah, I think it's twenty one and change. Yeah. So that's where that high comp lives now. Yeah. Price wise, okay. I think for a modular, mm-hmm. you know, I mean JLCs is different, but I think you know this this push towards having these like modular high comps that you can get for a more accessible price is, is 40 definitely bucks something. on my favorite gold Casio. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I, you know, kind of in that direction, uh, think one of the big pushes this year was toward more consumer friendly product. And maybe that's a symptom, Joe, of what you, you were talking about with, you know, people trying to find things that more people can buy and more people can afford thinking about what we saw this week the stuff that stands out most to me was not stuff at the high end. It was stuff at the relatively, I'm putting in scare quotes, the low end. You know, watches in the four to $10,000 range. You know, Cartier, lots of great stuff under $10,000. IWC, amazing new pilots watches, almost all of which are under ten. I think all but one of which are under $15,000. Um, Bowman Mercier, uh, tons of stuff. You know, they're always kind of the more accessibly priced. 
Um, you know, we're really seeing Panerai didn't focus on huge, crazy complications this year. It's more consumer-friendly product. And, and I think that always excites me. Um, I think it's, it's tempting for some of these brands to put a ton of money into the R&D to develop really exciting products to keep their highest spending collectors spending. Um, but I always like to see them put that same amount of effort and energy and creativity into creating products that might get new watch buyers excited. Um, Steven, speaking of Panerai, um, and I'm throwing this out to all you guys again, uh, they, they are doing stuff that is, uh, you know, I think clarifies, um, you know, they broke out submersible as a separate line. I think that's a great piece. That's a great piece of communication because it says to the consumer, these are our tool watches. Other watches might function more as a connection to our history or as reflections of our style language that are stylish everyday watches to wear. But in terms of, um, you know, what we saw that we thought was, uh, you know, an interesting move from a communication standpoint, the limited edition watches that they were doing, they come packaged with an experience. You know, the whole idea of creating a, an expensive but a really, really vivid experience for the luxury customer. Are we going to see more of that? I mean, a lot of it is happening behind the scenes just in terms of, you know, if you're a major luxury watch brand, you're investing heavily in client experiences anyway. But directly connecting them to a particular product, directly connecting a particular product to a particular ambassador, generating an experience around that. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, what do you what do you guys think? You know, I think it's kind of an interesting idea. I covered those three watches on introducing, so I, I was kind of the, the first into those press releases. And it's a neat idea because, I mean, like the idea... <laughs> The concept of a 47 millimeter carbon, you know, submersible from Panerai is already sort of a niche watch. And it's one that kind of flaunts the fact that watches are slowly becoming more towards 40 millimeters after Panerai has enjoyed a decade of huge watches being kind of popular at a consumer level. But with these ones, they're, they're you know, they're, it, it's interesting to, to, to go that route with a limited edition where you're not just offering a watch that's genuinely limited, you're offering kind of a colorway of a watch that they're going to continue to produce that's connected with somebody that's working with the brand. It's, a, it's like another level of ambassador. And my guess is that if I was them, so it's, it, it's more of an assumption, but if, you know, if I was them, you'd be producing all sorts of content surrounding this experience. You know, there's opportunities for all sorts of social media uh, that, that can live beyond 13 people going with you know one of these ambassadors to some crazy uh crazy experience on the globe i th i think it's interesting I, I wonder you know they double it doubles the price of the watch so you're really only now marketing to a subset of the submersible buyer is that hard to find uh a submersible buyer that has 40 grand and wants to go hang out with mike horn for a week on a boat versus someone who has 19.9 and doesn't i th you know i think i don't think they're gonna have a lot of trouble selling them it's I completely no, I mean, agree. Well, I think didn't they? I think this is a case where maybe we can check this later. But I think we were told that uh, at least the Mike Horn one was all sold out. Uh, oh, really? In our in our in our meeting? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't. So I did not get. They did not mention that in the press briefing. Yeah, that yeah. is not at all surprising to me. So they all sold out, and, and it doesn't surprise me either, Stephen. And I think that's because as we've seen, kind of over the years, what you know, ultra affluent people who are buying super expensive things ultimately want is exclusivity that goes beyond merely getting a product but having experiences too that money really can't buy i also think there's there's one more perspective that i think i might be able to add to this which is like i've been on one of these live aboard scientific you did a live aboard with with uh with oris with to uh, to a, a remote coral atoll in the pacific called clipperton and not only did people pay upwards of like literally there were four or five people on the boat who weren't scientists who weren't paid for like their trip wasn't covered by harvard or by a research grant or anything. There was like, yeah, four or five people who were there on their own dime, and it was about 15 grand. 
And that's before you flew to Mexico, before you put yourself in a hotel for the night before. Like, I'm sure the raw cost was somewhere approaching seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars. And uh, and then not to mention the fact that these people weren't at work. That has a cost associated to it. So when you really do the math, I don't think it's that crazy. Like, I saw some comments, people saying like, "Why would you pay double to do this?" And I'm like, "Yeah, if you, if you don't see the value of being on a boat with a awesome." world explorer and what all the cool stories he would tell and all the neat things you'd see and the great pictures you'd have and all these things like yeah you and i are on the same are not on the same level like and, I, I and saw a chance and to like, you know a chance to live in this world for a while and, yeah. and make and make it a, a little bit a part of yours Absolutely. i mean that's the, the I money mean, uh, seems uh, trivial there's there's like photography tours that go deep up into the emerald sea above vancouver and they're eight or nine grand for six days like it's not that it's not that crazy of a price if you're already into the watch and and you you have a schedule that you could take that kind of time off like it's cool. So these guys are gonna you know um, Joe made it, uh, an excellent point earlier that we are talking about the the high high end you know when you're talking about the Richemont brands, um, but it seems like this kind of thing is going to become more brands are going to have to get more and more creative in terms of, you know prices have gone up so much over the last twenty years they're talking to a much narrower much more fickle much more volatile audience than they used to talk to, and boy they're going to have to work to get people's attention. Yeah, it's true. So before we wrap up the show, uh, I thought we'd finish with a little quick lightning round. So I'm going to ask three questions. Uh, we'll get a quick answer from everybody, and uh, that's how we'll wrap up SIHH 2019. So And fast. Yeah. Lightning, so uh, question one is many of us are flying home tomorrow. So what's the watch that's going to stick with you after you leave the show? What's the thing that when you're on your flight home tomorrow or the next day or in Jack's case, the next day? Uh, what's the watch that you're going to sit in your seat just like dreaming about? Uh, let's start with John. Um, probably the, that Cartier Santos uh, Dumont. I love it. Um, because I haven't, I can't, I can't tell you the last time I bought a quartz watch. I can't remember the last quartz watch I bought, but this one seriously has me thinking about, um, swiping my visa. So I don't know. All right, there we go. Joe, did anything catch your attention? Yes, Stephen. I think it was the Lange Zeitwerk, and uh, not I think, I know. Uh, and that's because I was at the launch in 2009, and the thing was so different, and the reaction among many of us was, whoa, this is like, you know, way too across the Lange line. And uh, and so it now they're uh, 10 years later, it's now a family. This is the fifth one. So we have to be careful about making too quick judgments uh, on first sight about uh, a brand stretching uh, the limits. Nice. Jack? Saw a lot that I loved, saw a lot that I admired. Uh, the Vacheron uh, Twin Beat is right up there, but the one I wanted to take home with me, the one I still want to take home with me, the Cartier Privé Tonneau 2 Time Zone, uh, based on a design, a two, um, uh, two Time Zone watch that had two movements in it from Cartier's archives. This one has one movement in it that looks like two, uh, set with one crown and to push in the other crown. It's actually a pusher. Uh, use it to set uh, the lower uh, time display in one-hour jumps. Uh, I just thought it was a sexy, sexy, sexy watch. Cool. We got three sexies from Jack to wrap up SIHH. That's what everyone wanted. James? Yeah, I mean, I just I was just at the an, another AP meeting with John and, and got a chance to um, try on the Royal Oak chronograph in 38 millimeters. And it's a sweet thing when you get to try on a Royal Oak and it's sized for your wrist, because that's what's missing. Is if it doesn't, if that watch doesn't fit, it makes no sense. But if it's if it's the right size for your wrist, ah, it's so good. It's a good thing. And they had a gold, they had a gold one with kind of a gold white dial. I'm about that for sure. Good pick. Sweet. I think I'm gonna pick a Cartier Tano also, but I'm gonna do the 
Privé, Tano in Platinum, the normal, you know, time-only two-hand uh, version. SIHH are probably three of the maybe 10 days a year that, that I wear a suit these days. Uh, but if I wore a suit more often, I would have to have that watch. That watch in Platinum with the silver dial and uh, the ruby cabochon yeah. is... It is the most elegant watch I've seen in a long time, and it's just it's everything you want from Cartier done just kind of to the, truth, the most superlative level. The truth is, if you're going to fall in love with a Cartier watch, it did better be in platinum because Cartier and platinum are essentially synonymous with each other. You yeah. know, I mean, a, a, that that watch in white metal, ugh. platinum Cartier is kind of the best. Yeah. All right, so uh, we'll do something a little a little more fun. Let's go around a little little goofier. These booths at these shows for anyone who has never been. Uh, can be a little wild. Uh, SIHH tends to be a little tamer than Basel World, but uh, the brands get a little theatrical. They always try to do something eye-catching. They're vying for everybody's attention. Uh, so I wonder, what are the coolest booths that you saw this year? Let's start to my right here. Let's start with James. Yeah, without question, Sermas. Yeah. So uh, we got a chance to meet with their creative director, and they had a whole, like, they had a whole mental... 2001 Kubrick thing going on so like the main space is very dark but the back wall is this one big white panel of light and then there's like this weird sphere in the center and no matter where you stood it's just light gradiating off of it it's really great I would definitely sit there on a chair like with a pair of headphones on and just listen to some music and just kind of watch that it was great and like to have people walk by and watch the like a really long shadow yeah. move across that sphere the floor is also fun. reflective it's like painted like a almost like a lacquer black so you get these weird reflections it's really kind of cool. trippy yeah, yeah it's awesome it, it is like it's the last 20 minutes of 2001 in there <laughs> <laughs> without the space baby but like almost you can imagine you jump own. in i'm with you on that how yeah, about Joe? the windows the windows you want to go through the windows or, you, or either one i mean so yeah. they had this japanese designer designed all of their the windows that face outside and yeah. there's like seven or eight of them joe maybe and each one takes the watches further and further away from Earth to the extent that you start somewhere on Mars and there's like m the, the ground is moving like they must have a speaker or something that's yeah. that's like making the ground jump. And then, then a couple watches go past like an actual liquid form of Jupiter. It's not a screen. It's like actually liquid. It must have been a fortune. It looks so cool. And then as the as it progresses, it moves the watches move into a wormhole, come out into another dimension. And there's like the primordial first stage of new life. There's this like white bubbling. Gray has boobs. the most for those of those of you who are not in the room, which is almost everybody. So Gray has good. the most hilarious expression on, on his face right now. Honestly, I'll jump in and say I'm totally with both of you. This booth is so cool. I could have hung out there all day. It was kind of like it was kind of like Hermes cross, and this might be a little bit too deep. Of have Hermes, you ever looked at Jupiter? Beyond the Black Rainbow. Really looked at Jupiter. This really strange piece of science fiction from a few years ago, and it's just I loved it. I loved the whole booth. It was awesome. <laughs> all right, so okay. we got three answers there, Jack. All right, where are you at? Oh, geez, all I got is an airplane. You know, uh, I, I mean, well, I'm yeah, pretty good. good. That's a Spitfire. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm an old, I'm an old aviation enthusiast, and uh, you know, I mean, I love science fiction too, and I actually miss the Hermes booth. Um, and it sounds like I should regret that I did, but you know, there's something about seeing a vintage Spitfire that's actually getting ready to fly. That's just, uh, you know, it's one of those airplanes. Like, it's really strongly identified with the Air Battle of Britain, and you know, the Hawker Hurricane was actually present. You know, two Hawkers for every Spitfire, and you know, pilots was was a reliable aircraft, and you know, pilots respected the Hawker, but they they loved the Spitfire. And, uh, you know, that's how history is kind of voted to. And just to walk in there and see that thing sitting there, boy, uh, you know, it uh, it got me going. Just one of the most beautiful things ever made. <laughs> yeah. The Spitfire. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. John? Um, Hermes was really cool. 
I, I sense there's a but coming. Well, the way that you guys talked about it really makes me wish that I had paid more attention when I was in that booth. We can go back. And I, yeah, I think after this recording, we I can go I, back. Yeah, we're going to go take a group trip over to the Hermes Yeah, we're going to go booth. check it out. Yeah. You're going to be like, what are these idiots doing here? I thought they <laughs> left. <laughs> we're going to take a group, you know, trip. We're going to, yeah, that's what it is. Oh boy! Boom! <laughs> All right, but what's the but? Uh, Another but you know, I for me, I, what I really love about SIHH booths as opposed to like say Basel booths, which are Basel booths are bigger as you as you had already mentioned, it, but they tend to, to they tend to remain fairly static. Um, with SIHH, year in year out, based on what brands are doing with their collections, they'll totally redo them. And um, I think what Richard Mill did for the for the Bon Bon was just kind of wild. Uh, when you walk in there, you feel like it's somewhere between like. You know, living in on the on the board of Candyland and going to Willy Wonka or something. Um, so that was pretty zany. But you didn't um, bring me any candy. Uh, well, you actually, said it was a candy shop, but you didn't bring me any. They have candy. jars. They have jars of candy in there, so we can just go take some. Actually, right, we're going to Hermes and we're going to Richard. Do Mille. they have twin snakes? Uh, <laughs> the official the official candy of Houdinki. <laughs> I love twin snakes. <laughs> they did have. They Houdinki had. They had, gu- they had gummy. You by twin snakes. They had gummies Please. of some kind. So if you're not picky, then then they, they've got you covered. He's very picky, but uh, all right. Let's close this thing out. Let's take it home. What is your time capsule moment? If you had one moment from the show that you want to remember, that you want to keep with you for years to come, what was the best moment of the show for you? Let's We'll start in the middle here. We'll start with Jack, our esteemed editor-in-chief. Oh, boy. Uh, actually, you know, um, one of the things that I really, really love doing at trade shows uh, is getting a chance to talk to people who are involved creatively, at, you know, planning creative direction for the brands and planning design. And I had an opportunity to talk to the lady who is in charge of watch design for Cartier, which is a very, very interesting position to be in. And she said something that is going to stay with me just in terms of, you know, what you have to be prepared to do if you want to work as a creative. She said, I, you know, I asked her about the pressure of producing watches on a yearly schedule, which is really more congenial to the fashion industry than it is to watchmaking. This is not a natural product development cycle for watchmaking. And she said, and this surprised the hell out of me, given the behemoth that Cartier is commercially for the Richemont Group, she said, we don't have that pressure. And I said, what do you mean? She said, we can work on a watch for years, and when when we think we're done with it, if I look at it and I feel that it is not truly a Cartier watch, I can say no. I have been empowered to say, this is not a Cartier watch. And I said to her, does it happen? She said, it, yes, it happens. It happened this year. You know, we worked on a watch for, for years, and it just did not look to me when we were done with it like a Cartier watch, and it did not come with us to the SIHH. Because you cannot work creatively if you are under the kind of pressure that you are describing. You need to feel that you have freedom. And I thought to myself, you know, we're in a business where there's pressure to publish. It's relentless. Um, you know, we're feeding a giant beast called the Internet. But beyond a certain point, if we don't say to ourselves, I don't care, it's got to be good, we're in trouble. Agreed. John? Um, For me, it's something that we are doing this year that we haven't done in the past, and that is um, quite literally sitting here as a group and recording a podcast at the end of the day. And today we're doing it with beers. And this kind of, uh, this is is a a very important thing that I think that um, you do with a group of colleagues when you do a trade show, and that's get together, raise a glass, and talk about how the day was, what you saw, and what your experiences were. Um, And I think we all kind of learn from each other. Uh, based on the conversations that we had at the end of the day. And now you get to kind of share in it if you're listening to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's been a really fun addition to uh, to the trade show regime doing this this year. That's good to hear. Mine's uh, mine's beer-related, too, actually. So uh, we uh, there's there's not too many options in uh, downtown Geneva for us uh, in the in the evenings after we've finished writing our stories. And oh, don't give away the hideout. I'm giving away the hideout. No, I won't give away the hideout. But there is... There is a pub 
uh, that is perfectly serviceable um, and open late and open on Sundays, which is a rarity. It's basically that, a Subway and a McDonald's. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of evenings where you can run into anybody from the industry, you can run into, you know, people on the corporate side, you can run into other journalists, you can run into basically anyone. Um, and everybody just kind of has a drink and relaxes and, you know, kind of gossips and shares little, little things from, from the days at the show. And it's a nice reminder that this really is, is a strange but nice little community. Uh, and, you know, whether it's watching an Eagles game with uh, Joe Thompson at 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, sorry about the Eagles, Joe. Um, or whether it's running into folks from, from a brand, uh, you know, having a beer after they pulled a 12-hour day at their booth uh, entertaining people like us. Um, yeah, it's a nice little, nice little way to end the day. Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, I was going to pick what John said, which is just, you know, having, having more time to sit and actually kind of download on these days. It gives me kind of a different perspective that if I, you know, if you're more insular, if you just leave the show and go back to write, I don't get to hear what all of you think about it. Um, I, I guess second to that is, is kind of an extension of the Hermes booth is I, I got a chance to kind of sit in on a non-press meeting with Pierre Alexis Dumas, who is creative director of Hermes. I mean, that's, that's awesome. That's an awesome position. And it's also one that like, you can't mess up. And what he's done as far as like the watches were really cool this year. And then like, we've already talked at length about the booth and, and walking around and checking out the booth and, and seeing kind of the mind space where that you wouldn't necessarily tie to where this sort of celestial galaxy, uh, you know, traveling through wormholes and such was, uh, was cool and fun and something I'll, I'll definitely think of. How about for you, Joe? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, I was in a conversation with a jeweler, I'll try and make this short, uh, about the mania, the frenzy, for uh, certain watches of certain brands. Not the brand. It's got to be a Rolex steel sport watch or the the, the Nautilus. And I was asking, okay, why? And, well, he, he was just raising the question, it's gone too far. It's certainly there is the cognoscenti, the, the collectors who can come in, but now there's sort of this, this, this mania that extends that the people come in and they, they don't really know anything about the Nautilus. They just know they need to wear a Nautilus because they've seen other people and they've gone online and they've, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, the bottom line came down to the fact that pretty much it was new media that has created this kind of frenzy where uh, somebody comes in and wants an absolutely specific watch where it gets so hot. And it's part of my own personal discovery of the power of new media, social media, and, and the internet, and, and sites like Huntington. Great. Well, I think, uh, I think that's officially a wrap, boys. I think we're, uh, we're done. We're going to pack our bags, probably go take a trip by the uh, Hermes booth, and then <laughs> yes. head back to uh, try to get some work done before we have to pack and get on the flight, because we have quite a few stories to produce. Uh, you're going to be getting, you the listener, are going to be getting tons of content from us over the next week, two weeks, month, and more. Um, we've got tons of hands-on photos we're going to be sharing. We're going to do some roundups of our favorite watches. Uh, we're going to be talking about trends. We're going to be showing you some cool stuff that are not new releases that we found, watches we spotted on people's wrists, some crazy prototypes we found, uh, some really fun stuff coming. Um, and then before you know it, it'll be time to ramp up for Basel World. Uh, you know, SIHH and Basel World are kind of in flux right now. And uh, before we know it, it's going to be time. So this is the last SIHH in January. You know, this is kind of the end of, of an era that was in itself the end of the previous era uh, when SIHH and Basel were, were next to each other. But uh, pretty fast, the eras. Yeah, they're moving pretty quickly. But 
yeah, so this is the the end of the January SIHH era for now. Um, we'll be back with more of these in uh, in March at uh, Basel World. And uh, you should let us know what you think. Let us know in the comments on this story. Send us emails. Hit us up on Instagram. Let us know what you thought of these pods, what we can do uh, in the future for you to give you the best possible coverage of these shows. And uh, let us know what you want to hear about. So thank you to you guys for uh, coming in here at the end of every day and recording with us. And thanks to everybody who's listening. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's SIHH 2019.